Hi, it's Bill Smith from the Classic Camera Revival, and it's time for another deep dive. This week, we're going deep into the Nikon F. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. And we're back. It's Bill Smith here, and I've got a very special guest, along with John Meadows, our trusty sound engineer, my brother, Alex Smith. And um, welcome to the Classic Camera Revival. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Alex, can you just um, tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself? Um, you sure. Know. Uh, I got into photography from my, my wife, actually. She just suggested that I do something other than just work. And so I went out with my dad at the time and I bought my first camera. And then after that, which is the Minolta, uh, after that, I always longed for my dad's Nickermat and uh, lucky enough to inherit that later on. And that sort of started the trends, uh, the slippery slope of getting into cameras, so to speak, <laughs> and shooting film. Well, thanks, Alex. And of course, uh, Alex and I both, um, I wound up inheriting my dad's Nikon F, uh, a few weeks before he passed, and again, it's a camera that we both have a, a strong passion for because each of us own multiple copies of and various vintages. So today we're going to give you a real in-depth uh, background on the F, um, sort of the the collectability of uh, this uh, lovely beast, you know, sort of practical concerns, what they go for, and what's it like really to shoot with one. And John, you know, feel free to join the conversation as we go along. Okay, starting from the beginning, the Nikon F. Uh, it was made from April 1959. It was discontinued in October 1973, although some say they were sold into early 1974. The Nikon F was not the first SLR on the market. Exacta and Asai Optical uh, were a little further ahead than Nikon was uh, with their models, uh, particularly with the Asai Pentax with their Model K. What the Nikon F had going for it was a more robust model system with a complete lens lineup at the time of its introduction. The design vocabulary was heavily based on Nikon's rangefinders, starting with the um, S2, SP, and then S3. And you can see the strong similarities with the uh, controls on top. Now, of course, your basic... Uh, Nikon F, like the SP and the S3, came with a titanium shutter, uh, ran from bulb to one one thousandth of a second, uh, with depth of field preview, self-timer, and the F was shipped with an eye-level prism to start with, with either a, a Nikkor S50 F2 or the 58 F1.4 lens. It also had available as an, after, uh, as an accessory a waist-level finder and a clip-on meter powered by a selenium cell. Now, um, now of course, uh, back then, uh, photojournalists were primarily shooting with Leica M3s, Rolly Flexes, and either Bush Pressmans or Speed Graphica 4x5 press cameras. And again, Nikon came along with this robust 35 millimeter SLR and it essentially turned the German camera industry into a niche market. So in 1962 we saw the introduction of the meter heads starting off with what would we call the F-photomic. 
It was powered by one 625PX13 battery. It had one CDS cadmium sulfide cell. It was uh, sensitive from, I guess, uh, 10 to 1600 ISO. EV 2 to 17 at 100 ISO, and it had a coupling range from F1.2 to F22. That got discontinued in 1966, but even then, the flag, uh, the, the original photomic finder had a couple of variants, which Alex will get into later on. That was replaced for one year with a photomic T. It was introduced in 1965 and discontinued in fall 1966 to be replaced by the very cosmetically similar TN meter head which was introduced early 1967, and it got discontinued mid-1968. And it was replaced by the FTN, which was built uh, from mid-1968 to end of production. Now, the uh, ISO sensitivity on the last one the, was up to 6400 ISO, and the big advantage with the FTN meter head is you don't have to adjust the meter head to when you change lenses. Whereas all the previous ones, if you're switching from an F, say, 105-25 lens to, like, say, a 51-4, you had to adjust the, the meter head to, to account for that new aperture, maximum aperture opening. By the end of 1973, the F ceased production uh, with remaining models selling into 1974, and it was replaced by the F2 that was introduced two short years earlier. So, Alex, why was the F so popular? Well, the F was very popular, and in, in, in a way, it wasn't the best camera on the market. It was just the one that was marketed extremely well and had the greatest lens selection compared to the others. When you look at the, comp the comparable cameras it had, uh, that it was competing with, you were really competing with Topcon, um, you were competing with Pentax, uh, Canon had a camera out there as well, but Nikon, it, by 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 all accounts, when it was first introduced, it was the bulletproof hockey puck that could really take it all the way. And the lens selection was really what journalists, I think, were looking for at the time. And uh, even when you look at meter heads, the first metered camera with TTL metering was uh, Exacta's, or sorry, for Topcon's uh, RE. And uh, it was by far uh, equally a comparable camera, but it just didn't have the same lens selection. So Nikon, by far, was the one... Uh, that drove ahead, and it was it was just a a very robust, strong camera that journalists could rely on. Well, again, it also had the reputation for stopping bullets. In fact, I think there was one uh, photojournalist in Indo uh, in Vietnam took almost a direct hit from a AK forty seven bullet. He survived. The camera didn't. I believe the camera's actually in a museum somewhere. I've seen pictures of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Which in this day and age would be called eBay Minty. <laughs> A slight pleading mark. Yes. So, um, we both have multiple cameras, Alex. So, you know, tell us the story of number 32. Well, it was, uh, <laughs> at the time, I had a 6.4 camera. I was always looking for a, a, a low number... 6.4 serial number camera because, you know, I, I just really wanted to have as low as I possibly could. One with the original features that came on the 6.4. And so there were some nuances in uh, the serial numbers. So when you, when you start down to the very early ones, uh, the self-timer has a serious slatching mark that goes across. The back had uh, serial numbers on the inside. The film reminder dial was a different color. It was actually very much the same sort of style that showed up on the SP. 
so I, I went off to a camera site. I saw one that was available, and it was available for roughly around $260. And so I said, what the heck, I'm going to order it. Uh, lo and behold, it comes in the mail, and it was, uh, it was actually number 33. And pulled it out of the box, and I just about fell off my chair. And uh, it had all the trappings of a sub-100 serial number camera. So when you look at the sub-100 serial cameras, what does that mean? Well, the ones that, it, they're thinking it's up to about 100. The first 100, I think, were shipped to North America as part of retail sort of introduction. So not many of them were actually sold. Uh, but the sub-100s had a cloth shutter instead of a titanium shutter. The rails on the back of the camera were slightly different. They were matching on equal length on either side. The meter head, it was, it was, uh, the, the, the finder was, was still a triangle uh, non-meter head prism, but it had certain things that were very different with it. It had triangle pins on it, for example, and, and the, the, just the way it was built was a little bit different. The, re the rewind dial was, was a little bit different. The, the, uh, the winding lever head was com partially hollow, not completely hollow. Uh, self-timer was again a little bit different so anyways at realizing I had I didn't have the original finder with it it came with a flag finder and uh, the flag finder was was a gorgeous finder I mean it was the first version finder that came out it had a, a flag that you flipped up to turn it on um, the thing that was really amazing about it because it came with a little eye on the front and an eye on the side the eye on the side what you could do is you had a little telephoto thing that you put on. So if you wanted to shoot telephoto in meter properly, you took the telephoto, you screwed it on the very front, and voila, you had a telephoto metering. If you wanted to have an incident, there was a little incident disc, and the incident disc would allow you to point it up to the sky like you would any normal meter, take a meter reading, and then turn around and then shoot, which, was, which is a novel feature at the time, and I, I think probably one of the best things about it. But Needless to say, I, I had the camera and, and I just knew that it would be worth more to someone else. So I had it verified by someone from the Nikon Historical Society and I ended up selling it privately. Well, you know, and, and I certainly made my money on it. Um, the funny thing was the other day when I was flipping through Facebook, I saw someone had posted my camera <laughs> as, as in a museum somewhere on loan. <laughs> I just about <laughs> died. I was thinking, oh, well, there it is. It was, uh, I, I couldn't resist. I mean, I, I did shoot one, one roll of film thread, and it was, uh, it was glorious. It was a very quiet, a little bit quieter than a titanium, and it was uh, generally, I mean, I don't regret selling it. It's worth more to someone else than me, but it, it's cer it was certainly a beautiful camera. Yeah, I still remember the day I got that phone call from you. I think you were at work saying, Bill, I got number 33. <laughs> well, I, I tried, it's funny because I tried to get uh, uh, quotes for it and I called up Westlick and uh, Westlick Auctions at the time said, yeah, no, we won't take it unless you, you send it to us so that we can truly value it. And then we put, they put a value on it that was ridiculously low. Um, at the time... If I'd had the finder, I probably would have gotten significantly more for it. And I resisted. I, I wanted to sell it privately. I did not want to put it on eBay. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's one of those things that I, I threw, uh, threw a person who's sort of synonymous with camera selling in southern Ontario from a private perspective. I'm not sure he's around as much anymore. Uh, he, he took it to a, a he, he knew a couple of people that were looking for a sub 100 and I uh, and managed to sell it, you know, privately that way. I'd rather it have gone to someone who was really going to treasure it, so to speak. But um, it's interesting because I've had a bunch of Fs over the years, and that was one of them that was really interesting. The other one was the F with the motor drive, which actually sounded like a shotgun every time you fired the thing. <laughs> there was nothing subtle about it whatsoever. 
Um, you know, it's not the sort of thing you could have gone out with wildlife photography without alerting the entire world of the animal kingdom to be descending onto you. But it was it was an interesting camera. It was a later version uh, with the battery pack on the bottom. It was a little bit wobbly, so you always had to sort of jiggle with it. It wasn't the first version which came with an exterior battery pack. This one had the battery pack with it. And uh, again, I ended up, I went through a period of selling all my cameras and uh, I ended up selling that one and in a way kind of regret it now. And I certainly, it was a novel in that it truly did work. I had it overhauled by a Nikon, former Nikon tech and uh, uh, it's got a good home somewhere else now. Mm. Yeah, my my brush of collectible, I wound up with an early 640, but it's a black Nikon F that from January 1960 that a uh, local camera dealer had and was like one of those lightning strike strikes once. Mm -hmm. And I have it with me today here, which will, you know, you'll see the photos up on the uh, Classic Camera Revival site when this goes to uh, goes to uploading. Well, and, and truly, the black 64Fs are very collectible. And to have one with a 640 is even more collectible. They did not make many in, in, in that serial range, which probably would have been about, I'm guessing, uh, 1960, 61, probably thereabouts in terms of vintage and they probably were only sold to journalists so mm. naturally it's kind of had a different sort of life than when you think of the later ones which were bought up by uh, rich doctors lawyers and accountants so to speak and dentists and, and dentists of course <laughs> so Alex if you're looking for an early serial number Nikon F so just to recap what should you be looking at for if you're looking to get one I think part of the concern you have on the market today is Franken cameras mm. and people that have assembled things together from various vintages and sold, tried to sell them as, as low as possible. Um, I think with any, if, you, if you're really truly looking for a 6.4, there's a couple of websites out there that will go through the very minute details of why the rewind lever has three notches on it versus two and, and what to look for in terms of the flash sync um, and that sort of thing. I mean, I think if you find one that's decently working, that uh, has a hollow lever and maybe the serial numbers on the back, I think you're doing fairly well. I mean, the part of the challenge is a lot of people, the lower the number you go, the more expensive they become. And I think if you're looking for a 6.4, the best thing to do is try and find one in a mid 6.4. So 6.4.5, 6.4.6. And even a 6.5. I mean, the 6.5 is kind of the transition model, I think, when they started to get towards the meter heads. Mm. Um, and, and part of the challenge, too, is when you look at a 6.4, most of the 6.4s weren't made for meters. So when you look at the mirror box on it, it's, if it's a 6.4 and it's been cut, two things come to, come to mind. One, is it a Franken camera? Or two, is it truly a 6.4 and the meter box has been cut? Because they were never meant to take meters. And when they put the meter heads on... Uh, the configuration of the meter head was a little bit different than the eye level, so they had to make further indentations on the on the back in order to uh, uh, you know see if it truly fits. So the only way, true surefire way to fix that is to or to see if it's if that's the case is to pop the meter head off or pop the head off and see uh, how the meter box looks. But I mean, I think if you find one that's in working condition <laughs> in this day and age, um, that's a plus altogether, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, other collectibles, like you can go to the other end and go to the Apollo Nikon S, which are sort of to the tail end production. Uh, 
probably 1973, again, when the, the Fs were also used during the NASA space program with the Apollo uh, missions when they weren't using Hasselblads. And of course, they have other weird little uh, additions out there as well, including the, the so-called red dot Nikons. Uh, then Questar had some modified for, I believe, the scientific community. And of course, you got the military issue ones like for the U.S. Navy, because the U.S. Navy bought a bunch of Nikon oh, Fs. And those are extremely rare, because a lot of the times when they didn't want them anymore, they just threw them overboard. So there's a multitude of Nikon Fs that are sitting in the bottom of the ocean right now, um, making, you know, fine little home for fish. The other thing to look at, too, is the export permitted bodies because there was a range of, of bodies that were made that had e an EP graving on them as well to basically say, you know, they were for export permitted cameras because back in that time, um, uh, I guess, that, you know, there was a distinction between something made for the Japanese market versus made for the, for the foreign market as well. I find, the, I find the Apollo bodies are very interesting because when you look at them, it's... It's got all the trappings. It's clearly a Nikon F, but it has, you know, different meter, uh, sorry, different uh, rewind lever, uh, winding lever, and different uh, uh, self-timer, really starting to mesh the parts with the F2, which is which is kind of interesting. So it has that kind of hybrid feel to it. Yeah, I was sort of, you sort of wonder if they kind of ran out of the F parts and they saw it, they looked at it going, wow, you know, the self-timer lever is inter interchangeable, so is the advanced lever, we'll just dip into this parts bin and continue on until we finish up all the F bodies. So practical concern, most of the meter heads are dead on arrival. They also take the dreaded 1.3 volt 625 PX13 battery, which is mercury. And we are not crazy about our mercury. No, <laughs> you can get the head, if the head is salvageable and you've got a repair tech who knows their Nikon, uh, they can modify the head to accept 1.5 volt batteries. And if you've got an MR9 adapter or it's MR9 style shim, you can use 357 Energizer batteries all day, every day. And so in terms of quality, the Fs are, are pretty... Um, well, they're built like tanks, and they got a reputation of taking a, a total shit kicking in the field, especially. And they have uh, they've earned their worth in um, Southeast Asia. And in terms of lens compatibility, if you have an icon I love an icon F with an eye level prism, you can basically use any lens from the pre AI all the way up to the AFD. As long as you've got the ability to change the aperture yourself, you can use it on that camera. If you've got a F with the meter head, and provided it's working, you can use the pre-automatic indexing heads or pre-AI, or you can use the AI, which is automatic indexing, and AIS lenses provided you have the metering prong, or as we call the rabbit ears. And and the, again, they work just fine. So what do you expect to pay for one? Of course, the early 640 serial numbers are going to cost you some serious money, as are the Apollos. But what about in between? I think the black cameras, I believe, carry like a 20 to 25% price premium. And um, using KEH as a starting point, the embargo condition, quote unquote, and again, you could probably say this maybe with camera shows as well. 
you know, they start at about $79 US and they go up to $144 depending on what head you have on it. And of course, eBay prices will be higher because uh, they think they can get more. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting because when you're, when you're looking at buying one, I would almost in a way, it certainly and when they were released, the meter heads were worth more than the eye level prism. And uh, when you look at the evolution, I mean, the eye-level prism didn't go through too much evolution. I mean, there were some minor things. They went from a square, uh, a square eyepiece to one that could take a diopter. Uh, but generally, if you're looking in this day and age, the eye-level prisms are worth a little bit more. Um, I think it gives a glorious look to the camera itself. Um, and if anything, you know, finding one in a decent condition, if you could find one for under $120 with an eye level prism that's in working condition is a wonderful is a wonderful thing. The only thing to 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 note though is that the F was a little bit weird with flash sync in flashes. Uh it has a 160th sync as mentioned, but you also had to have an accessory flash shoe that you uh put on over the rewind lever and twisted in order to be able to uh fire a flash. And sometimes with the later versions, they changed the uh, the coupling device, and it's a little bit difficult to uh, to mount. But that's something to watch for if you if you are thinking of getting uh, an F to also try and get the flash thing so you can actually properly use a flash on it without having to hook up wires with a with a bracket. And something else that we should mention is that if you want to use a cable release uh, by itself, a regular cable release like a screw in will not work you need to buy what is called a nipple. Yeah, that's right. And the nipple is a little bit strange because everybody else in the world had a screw-in cable release that sort of had a little tiny prong that would, uh, you know, sort of a little point that would go in and, and under the button. Whereas uh, Nikon, and along with uh, uh, Leica screw mount as well, and uh, they had uh, uh, the nipple, which was sort of a, a, a screw-on, uh, that went over in between sort of the collar and the button and uh, it screwed around the outside and then basically uh, when you press it, it, it uh, releases the shutter as opposed to, it's like a, a plunger so to speak, more of a plunger than it is uh, like a, a tiny wire going and pressing into the camera. And like it's no big deal, you can get third party knockoff nipples as it were on the big auction site in, you know, from China or whatever, you're not spending a whole lot of money. But uh, if you do do work with uh, keg release, it's just something to be aware of. Well, and the other thing with uh, with shutter releases, you also have the soft shutters, and you got you got the and it, and it works on the same principle as the cable release. And again, you can get aftermarket ones that aren't too expensive. But the original Nikon, I can't remember the model number right offhand. Yeah, you're spending some bucks, like thirty or forty dollars for a tiny little contraption that can kind of just screws over your shutter button, but and Some people love them. Well, and the other thing with a cable release is sort of a natural extension into talking about the, the mirror up. Because the F did come with a mirror lockup system. It was a little bit strange because you had to twist the little mirror lockup and then fire the shutter and then the, 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 the mirror would stay up. And then you could shoot without the mirror and then you basically release the mirror to go back down. So um, quite a, a novel thing if you're shooting macro. Uh, or you're, you want to have no mirror shake in the body whatsoever. And it really is an interesting sound when you shoot the two of them together because it just has a subtle click of the shutter go, very much like a rangefinder. 
Yeah, it's funny, you know, people think, oh, this SLR shutters are noisy. It's not the shutter that's noisy. It's the mirror. It's the mirror. So what else, what other accessory finders? Like, have you shot with the waist level finder at all? Uh, I've mounted it a couple of times. Um, I have a waist level finder. I have an eye level. I have the FT. Used to have an FTN, and I had a flag finder. And I think of my favorites was the flag finder. And unfortunately, I had taken into a camera repair place uh, and the gentleman assured me that he could fix it and calibrate it. And unfortunately, he had uh, closed his shop and passed away. And uh, so naturally, that flag finder has uh, disappeared. So it's it's kind of a bucket list thing of trying to find another one. Uh, um, certainly one with an incident disc, because I think that's really one of the more novel things to look for. But with the, the flag finder, there's... Again, there's one, the, the, the earliest version where you flip it up and you didn't have a button, I mean, that was truly, uh, I think, uh, the, the truest, most beautiful of the finders. But um, they're wonderful finders all around. I mean, it's 100% view when you look through the finder, right? So mm -hmm. um, you don't have any um, cutoff or, you know, typically a lot of the, the SLRs of the day had something like a 90 to 85 to 90% view. Uh, and you didn't get a full, but uh, the Nikon F has a full view. And if like if you have, you know, a lot of these, the older Fs, they're pretty dirty until you get them cleaned up. But if you have one that cleaned up and serviced and put a reasonably fast lens on and look through it, it's like, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, when, when buying one, be sure best to have hold one because they are prone to separation and desilvering. And so separation is when you start to see a little line in the viewfinder and basically that is the inside of the mirrors coming apart and leaving you with an optical uh, aberration so to speak when you look through it's a little bit distracting it's no impact in terms of taking the picture it's just like having a line there and the desilvering is just you know the the, the prism itself is starting to lose its silver after all these ages yeah, sadly, Dad's uh, Nikon F that I inherited has a little bit of the uh, the, the mirror sort of separating a little bit, and it's always been like that, like since I got it. So it hasn't gotten any worse. And you know, like Alex said, it doesn't impact the photograph at all, which sort of leads into sort of like, well, what what's it like to shoot with the F? Why is it so much fun to shoot with? <laughs> I could jump in for, for a bit on that. Um, a couple of things I like is just, I, I find it interesting that how iconic mm -hmm. the look of the camera is, particularly with the big honking FTN finder. A few years ago, I was walking, like I brought, this is my sort of, I call this my wounded warrior. Uh, it's the black one with a lot of heavy brassing because the finish is worn off. I, I like that. Um, Black F, so that's the only way they yeah. should look. If they look too pristine, it's like, yeah, they got to go out and get used. used. Exactly. So I was walking down the street, I think actually not too far from here, up on Queen Street, and some guy was sort of looking at me, mumble, photojournalist. And the thing is, photojournalists haven't used these basically since the 70s, but it's still iconic. And the other thing I found funny about when Minolta, you know, they were trying to compete with Nikon, and they made their XK... And I swear they made their finder look big and bulky because they want to try and copy that big and bulky mm -hmm. aesthetic. The XK, that's almost like a podcast in its own right. Yeah. None of us own one. 
uh, and I do like my Minolta too, yeah. but in some ways the XK almost was a precursor yeah. to the Nikon F3 yeah. by almost a good yeah. decade. One thing I will say, it's interesting because I've got to Nikon F1 and F2 and F3, I sadly need some work, F4 and F5, is how there was the evolution of the, uh, the usability. Mm -hmm. uh, like in particular, I, um, the thing I find that takes the most getting used to on a Nikon F is the rear position of the of the shutter the shutter button mm. so i think you know the newer as you go through the line like the f2s and later had it closer to the front which is i think what most brands tend to do mm -hmm. so um they're just like little like it's no big deal you get used to it but it's it's interesting to see the ergonomics develop yeah that's what i found it's, it's funny when i grabbed it when I started seriously shooting with an Icon F, I can't remember if it was my dad's eye level prism or the uh, the the FT, which I bought uh, probably later in two thousand back in two thousand and five. The ergonomics just felt very intuitive to me. Like again, little things like having the shutter button towards the rear. Yeah, that took a little getting used to, but not really all that much. And right next to it, you had the shutter button. Like everything just sort of felt right where you needed it most and well, of course and that was the way it was designed yeah i mean i think that it was designed with very much um not that you have the pleasure of uh using our camera but rather um we want uh the pleasure of making a camera for you and mm -hmm. i think the attention to a lot of the detail when these cameras were made and just the attention to uh, the accessories is incredible. And right from um, the original macro lenses, which could go down to one-to-one, -one, which are uh, extremely rare today, um, right up to the, uh, you know, the, the having long lenses that were f2.8 would probably one of the first lenses to have uh, 200 or 180 f2.8. I mean, it was, it was a very much designed as a system camera, and that's why it took over. It was, uh, it took a year or two, I think, but once it did, it truly was, people were buying into a camera system, and that's why I think it truly dominated. The ergonomics, um, the use of it, the durability, um, they are very heavy. That's my only complaint compared to a rangefinder is, is it if you want to carry around one camera all day, that's fine. If you want to carry around one camera, two lenses, and a backup body, um, it will be a long and heavy day to a certain extent. You see the pictures like of the photojournalists back in the 60s. They'd be, you know, gunning with at least two of these around their neck, both with, uh, with motor drives. So you have to have respect for the, the physical demands of the job. Well, in, in a way, they kind of had to because uh, the one downfall is they did not have a swing back. You had to take the entire back off the camera to load the camera. So if you're out in the field, and particularly if you're uh, in the bush somewhere trying to take pictures and you zip through um, 36 and you got to start shooting again, you may not have the time to sit there and load a camera. So... You, pick up another camera and keep firing. And, and, and so I would imagine that probably played into some of the, some of the issue with it, that, and, uh, um, just the notion of being able to go between different lenses. I mean, it was very different than, uh, 
than some of the others. I think eventually over time, I think with the F2, which is probably the subject of another discussion, uh, they kind of got it right with a swing back, right? I mean, it made it much easier to load the camera. And that was probably one of the key things that, uh, again, made that such a dominant vehicle over the next number of years. At least it wasn't a Barnack-style bottom loader. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, don't ask me how they did that. Well, people think that the M3 was a, was a great improvement. I mean, you know, loading an M3 over, uh, uh, you know, a 3F, it's still a, it, it's still a finicky little thing to do, particularly if you're out in the open. Yeah, and then when something like the Nikon F came along, even with just the bottom coming off, or the bottom and back, for lack of a better term, that was light years ahead of the M3. And I think a lot of working photojournalists are going to say, hallelujah, they actually listened to us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and again, it's uh, getting to it, uh, to sort of try and wrap this up a little bit. Uh, the, you know, the Nikon F system, it's a great user camera. Uh, it's also a great camera to collect. In fact, you know, if you're kind of bemoaning the fact that prices of Leica rangefinders have gone through the roof. Nikon Fs are still very affordable in the grand, you know, in the grand scheme of things. You can buy yourself uh, a Nikon F with an FTN meter head and a couple of lenses. You probably get a, a decent amount of lenses, and you, you, they'll probably just set you back five hundred dollars. Uh, yeah, probably about three hundred fifty US, five hundred Canadian. And like, if you're not, if you can deal with a meter head that doesn't work, at least initially. Let's say like it's an FTN where the, the meter just isn't working, you know, use an use an accessory like use an, an incident meter. Hey, use the iPhone app. Well, that's the thing. Again, a lot of again a lot of people I know they're using their Siconic L three ninety eight A's or again like you said the uh, the iPhone uh, an iPhone light meter or a Google Android handset light meter app and they're pretty good and. Um, yeah, so I guess that pretty much covers it for now. So it's uh, Bill Smith here from the Classic Camera Revival, along with... Alex Smith here. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Alex Smith, Bill's brother. <laughs> and, and this is John Meadows. I have no joke, I guess, at this point, the reflex failed me. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, pardon the pun. <laughs> I never pardon anything. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go. It's a wrap.